Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Thursday, 4th of November, and today two of my colleagues are looking at the life and career of Joe Sifford. Well, Tom Howard is joined by Autosport's Chief Editor, Kevin Turner, for today's very special episodes. And stay tuned, because later in the show, we'll take a short break and thank today's sponsor, the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering at the University of Bolton, where their £13 million state-of-the-art facility is equipping graduates with the skills they need for a career in motorsport engineering. So, back to Joe Sifford. Stepping up to F1 in 1962, Joe Sifford shone with Rob Walker Racing Team and BRM before his career was abruptly ended in a fatal crash at Brands Hatch in 1971. On the 50th anniversary of his death a couple of weeks ago, Autosport recalled the career of an F1 and sports car ace, gone before his time. And now to hear more from the writer of that piece, Kevin Turner. Tom, it's over to you. I'm joined by Autosport editor Kevin Turner today to talk about Joe Siffert. This year is 50 years since the tragic passing of Joe. A great, uh, well, a great in sports car racing and also a, an absolute underdog but star in F1. Tell us a bit about Joe Siffert and why, why you've chosen to do a piece on Joe, especially with this anniversary this week. The original reason is, yes, yeah, 50 years since he was killed at Brands Hatch in the victory race. It was the last Formula One race of the season. He'd finished fifth in the World Championship. He'd taken over the lead of the BRM drive um, after the death of Pedro Rodriguez, who obviously we've talked about before and was his great rival. I'm sure we'll get to him. And he was on pole, made a bad start, was, was coming through. And then a, a sort of bizarre... I don't know if you'd call it a failure, really. I had a quite a long conversation with Tony Southgate, the designer, about why he thinks that... that the accident happened um, and it's quite sort of a complicated thing about wheel sizes and wheel rims which we might get to a bit later on but anyway it pitched the car off and Sifford didn't have didn't really stand a chance uh, unfortunately it was the end of a quite a sort of tragic period really so both uh, both BRM and the the JW Automotive Engineering Porsche sports car team lost it that sort of its two star drivers in the space of a few months so yeah we did um, did a nice package for, for Pedro um, and it and it seemed right to do to do the same for for, for Joe really. And Joe himself, uh, you know, he came from a poor family in Switzerland, a real underdog. Just tell us a bit about the character of Joe because he was a real star, really. A real hard worker. That's the thing that really comes out when you in his early days. So yes, you're right. I mean, his family had a, a dairy business, but it, it sounds like it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't hugely successful. They were always scrimping and saving, and he did all sorts of things uh, to try and raise money when he was when he was a kid. Um, perhaps my favourite one is when he overheard two soldiers talking in a cafe about 
them getting fed up having to carry one of them was fed up having to carry the spent cartridges on the range and the other one said well just bury them just just bury them up there so you don't have to carry them back and so Sif said oh whereabouts are you doing that then uh, and they told him so he then went up there and started digging up these cartridges that he then sell and eventually he went up there so much that uh, they some of the soldiers got to know him and he'd do odds and odd, you know bits and bobs for them uh, just to earn a little bit of money and I just think that's a great, great little story going up onto a rifle range to dig up spent cartridges to go and sell. I mean, that's just, you know, that, that kind of thing he was doing all the time. I think he realised that that wasn't going to get him a racing career. So um, he, he got, in the end, he, he got trained as a, a sort of a coach builder, coach works. Um, and then he was able to use those skills and his own hard work. I mean, he used to work through the night. He once got... He would work in the coach works and then do his own business during the night. And, of course, that was banging and crashing, so it upset the neighbours. Um, the police came round. So he was working all the all the hours that he could to save enough money to, to go racing. Um, and he went motorbike racing to start with. And then he went into Formula Junior originally with a Stangolini, which was front-engine car. And then he did a deal with... Uh, of course, you could always do a deal with Colin Chapman. <laughs> Uh, to get a Lotus 18, and and he started winning almost immediately with the uh, with the Lotus 18. And obviously, he made his his F1 debut. I think it was 1962. Um, but it was a it was an interesting way that he did it, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was also very quick. Um, he I think he'd done his first car race in 1960, and he was starting his first Formula One races just two years later. Um, but he did it, uh, uh, you know, privateer. There were a couple of sort of Swiss-based uh, privateers. It seems re- remarkable, doesn't it, for a country that, you know, banned motor racing after the Le Mans disaster in 1955. But they had a, a couple of privateer teams um, and eventually he went out on his own. So he was always he was always a customer, always running a custom car, always, as you said before, a bit of an underdog, taking on the works teams. Um, did, did You know, he did a lot of travelling around around Europe, world championship races, non-championship races. So 62 to sort of 64... Um, he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was doing that really uh, with a Lotus or a, or a Brabham, and then the big break came, uh, if you can call it a big break, was was getting us signed up with Rob Walker, who obviously was another privateer entry. But I mean, it's not not quite the same when you're joining a team that's won world championship races, uh, and obviously Sterling Moss was a championship contender with Rob Walker, yeah, a real you know, one of the. If you're doing a list of the greatest privateer F1 teams or Grand Prix teams. He, that would be very near the top. And um, he, he formed a very special relationship with Rob Walker. Um, I had the good fortune to talk to Simon Taylor, the ex-Autosport editor who, who, who knew them both, and knew Rob particularly well, and said that, you know, obviously Sterling Moss was like the guy for Rob Walker. But after that, once uh, Sterling had had his accident and was no longer racing, that the next, you know, the special relationship was with was with Siffert. And like many, and, and also very similar to Pedro Rodriguez, they... Uh, Joe went on to have an extremely successful sports car career as well as winning races in Formula One. Yeah, it took him quite a long time to sort of really become a a consistent front runner in Formula One, largely because he was usually, as, as I say, he was usually an underdog machinery. I mean, even with with Walker, you know, you, uh, yeah, they wouldn't normally have the absolute best equipment. That changed during the middle of 1968 when he got hold of a Lotus 49B, which is about... You know, the top piece of kit you could have at the time. Um, and I'm sure we'll get onto that later about some of the races he was able to do in that. But before that, he'd, you know, he'd been a star for Porsche. And of course, from 1968, the, the change in the sports car regulations meant that the three litre Porsches were now the big cars, whereas before they were up against the big seven litre big, you know, big bangers. They became an outright uh, contender. And yeah, he he quickly became the quickest, you know, the number one. In fact, he once apparently said, "If if I don't win, Porsche doesn't either." After after uh, Jackie Hicks in the ancient GT40 beat Hans Hermann at Le Mans in 1969, Sif made uh, he made a comment. He was very confident of his own ability, I think. And to be fair, in '69, him and Brian Redman they absolutely annihilated everyone. Really, um, you yeah, know, Porsche usually were there in big numbers. Um, but it was always those two, even to the point where when Sifford crashed the new 908 uh, Flunder at the Nürburgring, they got a, an old 908 um, <clears throat> from the Salzburg operation 
and still beat everyone, including the other works Porsches. Um, and it's a race that Brian himself um, really rates because it was up to that point, all the other drivers were going, oh, Joe and Brian, they get the best kit. He's like, well, we had the old kit and we still won. Um, so yeah, Siffert and Redmond were the combination in 1969. Before we, we look at the top 10 races of Joe's career, it's probably pertinent to say that he was particularly hard on his machinery and had a, a quite a unique driving style and also was very determined. I think there was a quote saying that I have to pass all the cars no matter what. Like it was a very sort of do or die method in a way. Well, I think uh, what's interesting is obviously when you get into 1970, so he's the, the JWA golf team take over the running of the works Porsches. And you'd think that the big rivalry is Porsche versus Ferrari, but it's complicated by the fact that, first of all, Porsche have a secondary works team. So you've got Porsche team versus Porsche team. And then I think Siffert, really, the person he wanted to beat was Pedro Rodriguez in the other golf car. So so stuff Ferrari, I'm going to overtake the Porsche. And they had quite different styles. I've obviously read quite a lot about about it and, and looked looked at footage actually. There's some quite quite good footage from nineteen seventy. And you very much get the impression that Pedro was a fingertip driver. So he was very you know, he, he could hang the tail out definitely, but he was quite smooth and considered and he would uh sort of play himself into a race and really nail it when he needed to, whereas if it just wanted to be at the front from the start, a bit more maybe a bit more arms and elbows is the way. I mean they called him sideways Siffert in Formula One and there are some absolutely brilliant pictures of him sideways in the full Lotus forty nine, really at a time when people were driving less sideways as tyres got bigger. Um yeah, a hard charger. Um he had he had a real rivalry with uh with Rodriguez. The people around feel that that was more a one-way rivalry in that Pedro didn't really see it. He's like, well, I'm better, so I don't know what this guy's on about. Uh, whereas Sifford whereas was you know, determined to beat him. And of course, there's that famous run through Rouge at the start of 1970 Spa 1000 kilometres. I mean, there's a sequence of pictures. The, f- the first ones show they've already several hundred yards ahead of the field before they even get to O'Rouge. Those in the days where the start was on the run to O'Rouge. It wasn't before La Source. And then when they get there, they hit each other. I think they actually touch twice through O'Rouge with these 550 brake horsepower lightweight sports cars, and they both get away with it. And that, that just sort of really sums up their, their rivalry quite nicely. But much to Sifrit's frustration, I think that Pedro did more of the winning and when they were at BRM together in 1971, Pedro tended to have the edge as well. So, um, interestingly, Tony Southgate reckons that Sifford was better after Pedro was killed. Um, I don't know that freed him up. Maybe it was a subconscious thing that he didn't... F- maybe he was sort of driving almost a bit too hard. And then once Pedro was then he was in the team leader role. It just flowed a bit more naturally. Um, so he was... Uh, arguably, he was a better driver when he wasn't up against Pedro and just trying to beat him all the time. That brings us nicely on to our little uh, top 10 that we like to do to see his top 10 races for Joseph. Now, there are some absolute crackers in this list, even though he may not have won them all, but there are some very, very interesting stories. So I guess we'll start with number 10, which is the 1965 Mediterranean Grand Prix. Now, this was an absolute cracking race where I think he won by 0.3 seconds in the end. Yeah, it was really difficult to pick this to know whether to pick this one or the previous year's race where he won by point one of a second. <laughs> uh, so entering those, you know, it was a, it was a high speed circuit. Um, so one of these sort of slipstreamer type type efforts. Um, and uh, yeah, so this one he was up against effectively the Works Lotuses and the Brands. The entry was slightly better, I think, in sixty five. Um, and he didn't qualify on pole. So that was why I put this in. You could have put either in, to be honest. And so he, he gets away, um, and he's fighting Mike Spence in the second Works Lotus for the lead. Jim Clark, um, who's on pole, um, doesn't have a good start to the race and has to has to get through the field and start closing on the lead duo. And ap- apparently, um, Colin Chapman basically signalled Spence to stop slipstreaming with Siffert because they were taking it in turns to leave, which meant, of course, Clark, with no slipstream, could just not get to them. And eventually, Spence just tucked in behind Siffert. And then, of course, they gradually got sucked back towards Clark. Um, when, and, and when Clark arrived, he immediately went past Spence. Then uh, Spence was unfortunate enough to get a stone in his goggles, which caused him to go off. So it's then a straight fight between... Uh, you know, Clark, already a world champion and arguably 1965 was his greatest year. You know, he managed to win the world championship and, and yeah, that small matter of the Indy 500. Um, and, you know, so on the on top of his game and they had a fantastic battle. 
I think reading All Sports Report, the suggestion is that the uh, the Brabham BRM did have a little bit more grunt than the Lotus Climax on that day, so Clark just couldn't quite uh, couldn't quite get past on the run to the line. So so Siffert, who uh, I think came very close to over revving the engine, it's like I'm going to win or blow the thing to pieces. Very sideways coming onto the start finish straight. Um, uh, and managed to hold off and win. And I think that did a lot to cement his place at, at Rob Walker's team. You know, Rob, Rob, Rob loved being an underdog. You know, that's what, that's what him and Moss were, you know, that's what they specialised in. And I think that he thought this is, a, this is a guy who can take on and beat the best. And a, and a classic case of a stone in the goals is, a, is one of those 1960s driving excuses that you just don't see today. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you get away with that as an excuse now, would you? <laughs> Uh, moving on to number nine then, the 1969 Monza 1,000 kilometres. Um, now, talk us through this. This was a classic Porsche versus Ferrari battle. Yeah, it's really difficult to pick any of his sports car race wins from 68, 69 because normally Porsche had the advantage and with certainly with Redmond alongside him, it was the best balanced lineup. So Sifford would normally run the first stint, normally from pole or very near the front. And then Redmond would, either the opposition would fall to bits or Redmond would do the damage during his stint because he was almost as quick. Um, so it was really difficult to pick one out. But the reason I picked this one at the Monza 1000 Ks, first of all, Ferrari rocked up with two cars, which they didn't do uh, often in 69. And they were quick. They were quick at home. Now, it's that classic cliche of Ferrari being quick at home. They qualified first and third. They were miles out of the other Porsche drivers, except Siffert, who managed to stick it in between them. And we're talking proper drivers in the Ferraris as well. Um, I think Chris Amon was on pole. Mario Andretti um, was, was... Oh, and Pedro. Pedro Rodriguez, was, again, was in the... And then Peter Shetty was the fourth driver. So you're talking some proper proper guys in the Ferraris. And at the start of the race, it's Siffert versus the two Ferraris. In fact, the Eurosport report even says it's it's not Porsche versus Ferrari. It was Siffert versus Ferrari. <laughs> and he manages to get in among this swapping and changing of places. He grabs the lead. Pedro gets it back off him. Um, I must have been amazing to watch because the two, the, the three cars would have sounded epic as well. Um, eventually, both Ferraris hit trouble, um, and so Siffert and Redmond were left to take a, a comfortable, a comfortable victory. I think they were a lap ahead of, a lap ahead of the next Porsche, which is kind of the point, really. Although Ferrari eventually crumbled, in the it was really in the face of Siffert's challenge because without without Siffert being there, there wouldn't have been a Porsche pressuring them. They'd have been cruising around in first and second. Um, so I really thought that was a little bit like in the Rodriguez list we did. I put the following years, Monza 1,000 kilometres on because he's in because he single-handedly beat a three-car Ferrari team. It was kind of, this was Siffert's equivalent, I think. And do you feel, like obviously you mentioned there, do you feel like that Ferrari just literally crumbled under Siffert's pressure? That, that was the, the telling factor in the race? Well, they to be fair, they didn't have as many miles. They didn't have as many cars at most of the races, and they didn't have as many. They weren't out at as many races, so they probably were always going to have a bit of you know, a few teething problems. But I mean, they had tire trouble, which you could probably manage if you weren't having to drive flat out. They also had oil pressure problems. I mean, that might just have been one of those things that was always going to happen. So it's a bit difficult to say whether Siffert. Uh, caused their problems but I think you know you're always more likely to find the problems if you're driving flat out aren't you so um, and I just don't think they would have had to unless of course the Ferraris would have fought each other I would suspect that Mario Andretti would have been sensible enough not to get drawn into something like that if it was just him and Pedro at the front Um, so yeah I think you'd have to say Siva was a contributing factor to their Ferrari's failure we move on to Formula 2 for the next race, which is number eight. And and this one, I genuinely would have loved to have seen this race. Uh, a 1970 Ruin GP F2 race where the eight cars, the top eight, were separated by 2.4 seconds at the finish. Oh, it must have been epic to watch. I agree with you. That would definitely be a race to go back to and watch, wouldn't it? Yeah. He didn't have many successes in F2, um, but that one was... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, of the... Of the eight cars that flashed across the line, the seven behind him were Clay Regazzoni, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jackie Ickes, who was his teammate for that weekend, Tim Schenk and Ronnie Peets and Derek Bell and Jack Brabham. Well, I mean, they're all names, right? <laughs> and they're all within 2.4 seconds and he was at the front. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, he, it, was a, it was one of these things where there were two heats and then a final. Um, and he put himself on the front row um, after, after his heat. 
Uh, but Regazzoni's Techno actually won the faster heat, and so he was on pole. Um, and there was a great quote, actually, uh, from uh, Justin Haler, who did the Autosport Report. He said, with the sole exception of Jackie Stewart, who wasn't there, rarely have 18 such potent car-driver combinations been seen in any form of racing. And there were, I, I, I added up the numbers. Uh, the drivers in that, of those 18, they would go on to rack up 72 World Championship F1 wins and six world titles. And that doesn't include people like Graham Hill, who didn't make the final. So, I mean, in terms of quality entry, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, and, yeah, he had uh, him and Ronnie Peterson, who would go on, of course, to become the king of F2, really. Um, they were always at the front of the pack. And Ronnie grabbed the lead and went on to the, uh, onto the last lap in the lead. But then there's a the hairpin where a lot of the moves were happening, and he just he just went in too deep. It was obviously one of those where I'm, I'm I've got to stay ahead, and he just went in too hot. Sivert got through into the lead and then held off Regat's only by point one of a second on the line, with Fittipaldi a massive extra point one of a second further back. So I guess the only reason it's perhaps not higher on this list is think think the streamlined BMW is probably a good car to have round rule. Um, Obviously, it did rely on Ronnie making the mistake. Um, uh, and, and, you know, with those slipstreaming battles, it can be a little bit down to luck as to where you are. Although it's funny how the, 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 the same people tend to be at the front normally. But, uh, yeah, I just thought it was a sensational race um, that, as you say, I would have loved to have gone, gone back and seen. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm sort of hard to think of another occasion where you'd have that many names so close. Like, it's just mad. Yeah, it's, it's it's brilliant, isn't it? And there have been some um, Ke- Kevin Wood, who is the unsung star of uh, uh, the motorsport images, um, and they send the photos over. He's he unfortunately he wasn't able to find a photo uh, of the actual finish, but he did find some fantastic pictures of them at the hairpin and coming down uh, down towards the hairpin. And there's just a mass of cars, um, and uh, yeah, just look. and of course all different chassis as well, different chassis, different. Uh, different engines, different drivers. Um, and also, I mean, how often would there have been a, a Swiss driver's 1-2 uh, in an international motor race? I mean, that's, uh, yeah, just just a lot. Just a race that I wasn't really aware of um, when I started doing the research, but the more I looked into it, I thought, this has got to be on the list somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, well done on the research there, because that is... That is a phenomenal entry. Uh, number seven, uh, the 1969 Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. Now, this is a classic case of a, a charging drive from Joe. Yeah, he's qualified 10th. Just never, the car just never really worked particularly well in, in practice. Um, but then in the race, obviously, they got it They got it nailed. Um, and he, yeah, so he started 10th. He was 9th at the end of the first lap. He was 7th the lap later. Um, and then he caught you know, Chris Amon's Ferrari, the McLarens of Denny Holm and Bruce McLaren. Uh, and he and he went past all three of them very, yeah, very rapidly. Um, the Allsport report said he outmaneuvered Holm in a heart-stopping moment. So again, that's probably would have been something nice. Didn't find footage of that, but uh, I'm sure that would have been good to watch. Um, and he was that that put him up to fourth, uh, very close to Graham Hill in the Works Lotus because obviously he was in the Rob Walker car, um, and he he found a way past Hill as well. So he'd gone from tenth to third. Um, uh, and the two guys ahead of him were, I think, probably at that time, the two best drivers in the world, who were Jackie Stewart and Jochen Rint. Rint's works Lotus failed him, as it did a lot in 1969, and Stewart was left to win with Siffert second. So, uh, yeah, ahead of basically all the factory cars, except just uh, except Stewart's. Um, it actually put him up to third in the driver's table at that point as well. So, yeah, one of the sort of best underdog, sort of combined the underdog with charging through the field. So I thought that had to, that deserved a place as well. Exactly, I completely agree. Well worthy of the of the place in the top ten, and we'll move to swiftly on to number six, which is in a race. I'll be honest, I've I've never never come across in my in my time, but I had to go and check the pronunciation just to make sure that I got it right. But the Syracuse Grand Prix. Uh, now, tell us a bit about this because he didn't actually finish this race, but it's made it to number six. Yes, um, and it's the it was in the same Brabham BRM um, that he he driven. Um, in other non-championship races, including the Mediterranean Grand Prix we, we were talking about earlier. The reason this is higher, one is much more of a driver's circuit. It's not just a, a flat-out blast. It was a really challenging circuit. It's where, of course, Tony Brooks famously won, took the first you know, British uh, car driver win in a Grand Prix, a non-championship Grand Prix since before the Second World War. Um, so it was, it was a proper track, 3.4 miles, 
uh, I didn't include it in the piece, but they actually lost they lost control of the crowd as well, and they were some of the some of the crowd were dangling their legs over the apex walls uh, with the cars flashing underneath. I mean, you just can't <laughs> imagine it now, can you? Uh, so they were um, so they were flat out, and the re- the reason that that uh, it's on there is he had a, had a fantastic fight with John Surtees and Jim Clark. So you think at that point, if it was Okay, he'd been on the F1 scene a little while, but you know he'd not won an awful lot. He'd never, you know, not wasn't a works driver, and here he is fighting the world champion from the year before and the world champion from the year before that in factory cars. Um, and it looked like he actually certainly was on had at least an evens chance of winning. He'd grabbed the lead back. He'd swapped places with Surtees a couple of times, but he was actually ahead um, when the BRM engine. Um, I think it over revved going over a bump doing a gear change just at the wrong moment and it and it, it buzzed the engine. Um so it put him out of the race. Um but but apparently both Surtees and Clark um you know commented on Siffert's driving on that day because there were some really high speed committed um curves on that circuit and he was he was able to match two you know two of the best drivers in the world in a privateer car. Um, so yeah, it was, I thought that was a bit of a hidden gem, really. That one. Do you think that would have been a wake-up call for Surtees and Clark? Well, I guess it would have been one of those moments where they perhaps registered that they this was someone they needed to keep an eye on. Um, I, I imagine had it just been the two of them, they would have been perfectly capable of keeping each other awake, as it were. But um, yeah, I think it's probably one of those races early on. You know, this young guy very committed, um, but you need more than just being committed you know you can be committed and go straight off the road can't you so um yeah he was fighting wheel to wheel on a high speed circuit with you know two of the absolute top guys i'm sure they'd have registered that he was someone to you know someone to keep an eye on or or at very least you know respect so we move on to number five now and we go into some sports car racing with the 1970 daytona 24 hours and a porsche 917k lovely car and uh, this was again another uh, illustration of his ability to charge through a field. Well, it's the never say die attitude. I mean, the list of problems that that car had. Um, I mean, almost if there was one car that went through basically trouble free, and that was the Rodriguez Leo Kinnanen Nam One Seven, which ended up winning by I think I'm right in saying about forty five laps. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> that's hours, hours ahead of everyone else because almost every other car either broke, crashed, or spent so long in the pits that, um, uh, you know, that they weren't in contention. So the <laughs> the other car carried on going round, you know, happily, um, you know, miles down the road. But yeah, so uh, Siffert was on good form that weekend. He dived into the lead early on. Um, I think Mario Andretti was on pole in the Ferrari, got the lead. Uh, on the first lap and actually pulled away from Andretti and Rodriguez in the early stages uh, and was all it was all rosy but then <laughs> a sequence of things it had a puncture and the puncture tore a brake line which they had to fix then he had a distributor problem then uh, I think a shock, a shock absorber broke uh, and this is, this is all before the big problem which was clutch failure which took an hour and a quarter to fix so just I mean you'd have been forgiven for throwing in the towel really at that point but um uh even the very efficient jw automotive team had no idea where he was when they sent him back out because obviously they were busy i guess half the team would have been busy looking after the lead car the other half were busy fixing his so they weren't even sure where he was when he went back out on track so they basically just said to Siffer, just drive flat out and overtake everything uh, and and uh, team boss John Wire's uh, description that afterwards was this was a situation Seppi loved. Uh, he enjoyed himself immensely driving absolutely flat out and passing everything in sight. Um, and basically, the it boiled down to the last hour or so when the second place Ferrari had a chassis crack which they welded up in the pit lane. Um, I mean, there must have been some absolute you know heaps going around by the end of the race. Uh, and uh, and that brought them within range for Civic, who was in third place at the time, to actually, oh, you know, can he get there? Um, and so he drove absolutely flat out. Apparently he was sideways on the bank. In fact, there is a bit of footage of that. He was sideways on the banking at 200 miles an hour. I mean, that, you know, it was even, even Simon Taylor, who'd, who'd been around a bit by then, said it was, you know, a, a sort of a terrifying thing to watch. But he But he kept it on the road, and in the end he dived past, I think he dived past Andretti with, Oh, I think about five minutes to go or something to snatch second place 
the organisers then rather spoiled it by saying, oh, actually, no, we got our lap chart wrong. The Porsche is already in second. Um, so he was actually classified three laps ahead of. So if you look at this up in the history books, you go, what's he talking about? They're not that close. But that was a sort of a, uh, that was something that happened during the race as the lap chart was corrected. Um, so it was just one of those ridiculous, you know, it must have been spectacular to watch. And he set the fastest lap in the last hour on a track that was obviously not going to be at its best with all the oil down and with a car that had been cobbled together. Um, and you think that's just, you know, that that's just incredible, really. So I guess the only reason it's not higher, obviously the lead car, you know, wasn't, you know, Pedro Rodriguez wasn't really under pressure. They could just bring the car home. And to be fair to Andretti, I think his car was probably even more, even more bent than the Porsche with a welded up chassis. So I hardly think that Andretti would have been uh, driving the Ferrari at its optimum at that point. But just thought it was a great, a great charging, spectacular effort in a, in a car that, Yes, if it was good in, but didn't really have that much luck in. It's just incredible that these things, when you think about it today, that this that could have happened, you know, like Ferrari welding a chassis together and just people cobbling cars together to reach a finish. Oh, it was the only Ferrari left. Yeah, it was the only <laughs> Ferrari left. There was, I mean, I, I can't remember where the... I mean, it was one of those races where the sort of the Trans Am cars finished quite high up because uh, just everything else fell to pieces. I mean, it was the first race of the season... Um, and obviously, you start the season with a 24-hour race. You're probably asking for trouble. Yeah, it was the debut of the 512S Ferrari as well in an international motor race. So, yeah, it was all. Um, I, it was probably one of those. It was a more of a chaotic, dramatic race than the great one. You know, if it's won by 45 laps, that's it's not very close. Um, but yeah, so I think Siffert basically made the made the race with his with his late charge. Well, our podcast continues in a moment. First up, though, thanks to today's sponsor for the Autosport Podcast. It's the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering at the University of Bolton, where their £13 million state-of-the-art facility is equipping graduates with the skills they need for a career in motorsport engineering. Here's MSc student Emily Platt talking to David Addison about being involved in the BTCC. So this year I've been looking after the onboard footage. Um, so I've been making sure camera positions are correct. When the uh, officials need to see the footage, I can get the memory sticks and take them up to them so that they can make the important decisions that, that go on behind the scenes that not a lot of people uh, know what's going on about. How easy is it to gain the acceptance of teams, partly on the basis that you might be considered as only a student and also, of course, being a female in what's still a very male-dominated world? Um, I feel like I've been very very fortunate especially in the British Touring Car Paddock that they've been very accepting mm-hmm. um, as soon as I walk into a garage uh, they do what I need and I can go in and get my job done as quick as possible so that they can get on with the rest of their day and make sure that they can get their cars out on track. What about the Ensign Formula One project because that's completely different again isn't it? Yeah that was um, a very big learning curve for me personally because mm. I'd never done uh, anything like that before uh, but I had uh, a great mentor Pete uh, and uh, Ken we were able to work with them side by side so learning from them through that project was absolutely fantastic and uh, I really enjoyed it. What have you gone out of your time at the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering would you say? Uh, a massive amount all the projects that I've been involved with they've then been embedded into my in-class um, learning mm-hmm. so it just emphasizes the degree even more that you're not just leaving with that piece of paper to say you're qualified you're leaving with a a lot of experience on on top of that which employees are looking for Um, and I think that's what the university have got um, have done really well this year of making sure their students are experienced as well as qualified well you can find out more about the national center for motorsport engineering at the university of bolton online at bolton.ac.uk and now back to the podcast Moving on to number four now, which is uh, Joe's first Formula One Grand Prix win. Um, so this is only makes number four. So the, the next three after this are going to be pretty special. Well, this is probably his most famous win. I guess if you were just thinking off the top of your head, oh, Sifford drives, this, this would be the one that comes to mind. So when I started the list, I thought, well, this could be number one. Um, uh, and as you say, it's his first World Championship victory. It's his first time... That, uh, that he had his hands on the Lotus Foot 9B. So for that race, he had parity of equipment or as close as you get with the Works Lotuses. Uh, the Autosport did make a comment that the wings on the Works cars looked slightly bigger than the one on the customer car, which I thought was quite amusing. Um, but I mean, Colin Chapman, to be fair to him, was always bolting on X during that period. He was just bolting on more and more length to the wings. You know, some, there are some pictures of it with, uh, they've literally just added sort of 
blades to the end of the airfoils just to make wider, wider, more downforce. I mean, they got ridiculous <laughs> in the end. Um, but yeah, so um, he, he qualified fourth. He jumped to jumped to third. He actually briefly jumped to second. There is some footage of this. He gets he gets uh, gets ahead of Hill as well, but he leaves Hill room on the run up to Druid. So it's a it's a Lotus one two three. Um, Hill overtakes Oliver Jackie Oliver for the lead, and um, so it's the three Lotuses and Chris Amon. Um, and then uh, Hill's car breaks. Um, Oliver looks in command then, and then his car breaks. So at this point, you're thinking a Rob Walker run Lotus is perhaps the one to be having. Um, and he then has a duel for the rest of the race with Chris Amon. If you think at that time, both of them were looking for their first World Championship Grand Prix victory. The gap between them was you know, a second for most of the race. Um Autosport described it as Sifford's race of his life at the time. Um, and with 10 laps to go, Eamon was still within 0.7 of a second, but then he just started to struggle with a bit of tie wear and Sifford carried on serenely serenely to win by 4.4 seconds. Uh, it was the ninth and final World Championship victory for Rob Walker's team. Uh, and it was, it's got to be the highlight of their time there. Um, uh, in fact, a lot of people actually say, I've seen this in a few places, that gets people claiming that was the last time a privateer car won a World Championship Grand Prix. That's not right, because obviously Ken Tyrrell ran the march that Jackie Stewart won 1970 Spanish Grand Prix a couple of years later. So it wasn't quite the last, but um, certainly one of the one of the most famous. Just to sort of obviously clear that up, it was the 1969 British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. Uh, obviously, 68, 68 oh, British Grand Prix. 68, sorry, 19, that was the 1968 British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. And obviously, Brands Hatch was tragically where uh, where he would his life was cut short. He he was very good there. Um, yeah, he was quick. He was he was quick there. I um, mean, Formula One and, and sports cars. Um, and as I say, it wasn't. I don't believe anyone thinks that it was a driver error that that killed him in 1971. And moving on to number three is a uh, back to sports cars, but Can Am this time uh, at Watkins Glen in 1970. Yeah, so this is this is quite nice in that. So they they ran um, the uh, Watkins Glen six hour World Sports Car Race on the Saturday, and then the big banger Can Am cars. So we're talking seven seven and a half liter V eight things rocking up for the next day, including the Chaparral Sucker Car, which Jackie Stewart was driving, um, which uh, which was an early. I'm a Chaparral. That's a, that's a podcast in itself. Some of the innovations that Chaparral <laughs> tried, but so basically, the, all the World Sports Car teams were there, and of course, Can Am, because an American big American motorsport category, gave good prize money. Um, the European European type racing wasn't so you know, it was a bit scrimpy on that, and the Americans were much better. So everyone hung around to do the the Can Am race the following day. Uh, the wire team actually brought out their spare car so that Redmond could do it as well. So they had more cars in the Can-Am race than they had in the, the main sports car race. Um, so if it didn't have a particularly good uh, qualifying session, he was only 12th, which was sixth of the Group 5 cars, which is what the Narmon 7s and the Ferraris were. Um, uh, obviously with the big bangers right at the front, the works McLarens were the, were the quickest things along with Stuart Chaparral. And then in Wire's words, he... he, he Sifford drove one of the one of the best races of his life. Uh, he just kept coming through the field. A lot of people made mistakes that day. There's footage of Mario Andretti having spent ages to get up to third place, and he drops it the last corner and lets the cars back past again. And Sifford's just relentless. You know, it's um, it a hot day. Um, lots of sideways action. Lots of uh, you know, lots of tricky parts to the race. I think, um, but he got up to fourth overall. He got ahead of Rodriguez, which is one of the reasons why it's. You know, why it's here and it perhaps backs up Wise's point of view that, that Sifford was a, was a sprint guy you wanted him in your sprint races because he just had that speed and he got up to fourth Rodriguez's normal seven broke anyway um, and that left Sifford out on his own as the lead group five car and he then caught the monstrous McLaren M8D of Dan Gurney in the Lola T220 of Peter Revson now I think, to be fair to Gurney, he was suffering with a bit of overheating trouble with the big Chevy V8. But nevertheless, you've got this, you know, this five-litre, um, I don't think it was even full five-litre at that point, uh, Narman 7 with, with covers over the lights so it conformed to the regulations and would have looked tiny. I mean, the Narman 7, if you've ever stood next to one, they're actually small anyway. And it would have been tiny coming up behind these uh, these big old, big old V8 uh, monsters. And Gurney got a penalty um, for overtaking under yellows, and Revson had a uh, had a problem with um, I think it was an oil pump, 
and that put Sivert into second. And the, really, the only reason he didn't win was because he had to have a fuel stop. The tank capacity in the 917 wasn't enough to get to the end of the Can-Am race. So he had to come in, have a splash of fuel, went back out again. Uh, and by the end of the race, Denny Holm, who was leading in the other works McLaren, was struggling quite a bit with high water temperatures. Um, I don't think the track was in very good condition by then. So you can imagine driving one of those big Can-Am cars was probably a bit of a nightmare towards the end of the race. The last thing he wanted was Sifford, who just kept coming. And he was only a handful of seconds behind at the end, certainly closer than the time that he'd lost in a pit stop. So to have beaten the works McLarens, which nobody ever did really during that period, it wasn't until the turbo Porsche Armour 7 came along a couple of years later. Um, yeah, the McLarens won everything. Um, and the Group 5 cars finished second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh, which rather showed the reliability problems of the Can-Am cars. Um, but see if it was two laps ahead of the next Armour 7, which I think is phenomenal really. Um, so not only did he absolutely thrash his, you know, the people in the same sort of cars as him, uh, he very nearly pulled off a, a, yeah, what would have been a really remarkable victory. Indeed, and and, and I guess uh, yeah, it's, it, we don't see a lot about these days those sort of drives anymore, do we? No, well, I guess uh, well, I mean, the, the Can Am thing is is interesting, isn't it? In this sort of no holds barred uh, competition that it was. And that was fine all the time that you know a, a British team run by New Zealand using American engines was winning. But as soon as the uh, the Germans rocked up with Roger Penske with the tur- this turbocharged thing, that was that was unacceptable. The no holds barred thing stopped being no holds barred after a couple of years. But that's probably the subject of a uh, of a different podcast. <laughs> uh, number two, then the runner up. It's the 1968 Mexican Grand Prix. Now. He gets pole in this race, uh, but actually finishes sixth. So tell us the story of how this unfolded. Oh, I very nearly put this. Uh, I very nearly put this number one. This was kind of in a way my sort of favourite standout drive. But I'll, I'll explain why it's why it's number two in a minute. But um, yeah, so it's the it's the season finale. You've got Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, and Denny Holland going to the finale with a chance of taking the world title. And often you do find. Um, I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is Mark Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen at Suzuka. You know, the, when you're in a championship fight, they just they tend to elevate. If they, you either crumble under the pressure or you elevate ahead of everyone else. But but Sifford just just was just on superb form and went with them, grabbed his first pole, um, made a poor start and completed the first lap in eight. So you think, okay, right, well now you've got Hill and Stewart up front battling for the championship. Fine, normality restored. But then Sifford just just picks people off. And it took him just six laps to get back to third, at which point he was six seconds behind Hill and Stewart, and he and he caught them, and he went past both of them, and he just he had everyone covered that day. Um, and then what elevates it further is he's um, the, a bolt holding the throttle cable came out, so he'd done all this work, <laughs> got himself into the lead, got ahead of the championship fight, and then he had he lost around four minutes, lost two laps. Uh, with it being fixed, and then uh, proceeded to absolutely obliterate the lap record. Um, so it was one of these, another one of these cases. If we've got absolutely nothing to lose, nothing really to gain either, but just driving it for the hell of it. You know, I think he loved racing. Um, you know, like why I said, you know, if you give him the excuse to not have to look after the machinery, perfect. It was you know all or nothing. His best lap was nearly 0.9 seconds quicker than anyone else. You know, and that can't be car advantage. You know, he had a Lotus 49, the same as, you know, same as the works guys. You know, Jackie Stewart in the Matra was normally pretty rapid as well. Decent McLarens. So he absolutely thrashed everyone. He actually took one of the laps back. Um, I did double check the timings on that just in case, you know, the way it crosses the line. But he did, he genuinely was two laps behind. Um, and he went, uh, he went past Hill at one point. Hill, Hill went on to win the race in the world title in what was one of his great performances, given what had happened to, to Team Lotus and Jim Clark that year. Um, but Sifford completely had that uh, had that race won on pace. Rob Walker reckoned it was Sifford's best drive, which I think says a lot. And and Seppi himself said, you know, if the race had been longer, I just I would have won. I'd have caught everyone. And looking at the numbers, you'd say he probably had a point. If he'd have won this race, surely this would have made it to your number one, right? I would have bit yeah. I think I think if he'd won this, I mean, maybe that's a bit a bit harsh, really. But uh, to to not put it number one. Um, I very, I very nearly did uh, put it, put it at one. I just think it's a phenomenal race, and it would have been so brilliant to have finished it with a win. I, just, I guess from a sort of championship story, it was, it was kind of nice that Graham Hill won the race. You know, took the title. You know, after Clark being killed earlier in the year, sort of that's got a sort of nice poignancy to it as well. 
But um, yeah, I think in terms of all his F1 races for Rob Walker, this was the one that for me stood out more than, than Brands Hatch where he needed a little bit of unreliability for the works loaded to win. Whereas here, yeah, on a clean run, he'd have I think he'd have won the race going away. And that brings us nicely to number one, which is his second Formula One World Championship Grand Prix win, the 1971 Austrian Grand Prix. Now, this is as close to a perfect win as possible, but there was a dramatic end to this race. Yeah, um, the reason that this is number one is I, I try and be, I've said this before, I try and be objective when I'm picking my, you know, doing the list. But number one, it's so difficult to do it without letting a little bit of emotion and subjectivity to get into it. And this this is poignant for a number of reasons. You know, it's after Pedro Rodriguez has been killed. Sifat's become team leader. Um, it's also, obviously, you wouldn't know, they didn't know at the time, but it was Sifat's last win in anything because, you know, he was killed at Brands just a, you know, a couple of months later. Um, and also, I, I like the fact that whereas a lot of the races we've talked about, he was sideways and... And, and really charging. This is one of those races where you feel like maybe he was actually on that next level where he, he was just in control of the whole weekend, which is the way that, you know, the, the real greats, the top people, the Stewarts, the Hamiltons, the Schumachers, you know, when they're absolutely on top of their game, it looks easy, even though it isn't. Um, and so I thought it was a combination of reasons I, I put this one here. So he put it on pole um, and he then, him and Jackie Stewart just cleared off at the start. Um, you know, they, you know, Stuart, Stuart was the, was, you know, the guy in 1971. You know, he won the championship easily. Uh, and, you know, Sifford was leading him and, and Stuart struggled more and more to keep up as he struggled with, uh, with the tyre, I think it was, a tyre issue. And he waved Francois Sever, his teammate, through. Uh, he couldn't have a go either. So it's one of these things a little bit reminiscent of 61 Monaco where the Ferrari was swapping order to try and go after Moss. It makes no difference. Um, and short, funnily enough, shortly after Sever went into second, Sifford banged in a new lap record that was three quarters of a second faster than anyone else had managed for the whole race. So as if to say, yeah, I don't care what you're doing behind me, I'm I'm gone, chaps. Um, and when both tools hit trouble, Sifford was left with almost a half minute lead. So he's absolutely got it nailed, home and dry. And then just for an extra bit of drama, as you say, um, what wasn't particularly unusual in those days is that he started suffering from a slow puncture and people didn't know what the problem was to start with that were watching. But Fittipaldi in the second place Lotus was getting closer and closer and closer. But Sifford just held his nerve, didn't do anything daft, paced himself, did what he needed to do and still crossed the line with four seconds in hand over Fittipaldi. So um, Patrick McNally, who was the Autosport F1 reporter in those days, reckoned it was Sifford's best ever race. It was his last one. Uh, he was in complete control and he dealt with hardship at the end. So for me, it was just enough, just enough to push it to number one. Um, but I think Mexico 68 or Austria 71 could have could have been number one, really. I think it's a worthy choice. I think it's a great top 10. And I, I have a few questions that I just think it, it, it's worth discussing just a bit about, a bit about Joe in that. Um, do you think like maybe he doesn't quite get the credit that he deserves? Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. And partly because it's long enough ago now, you know, as, as more time passes and fewer people saw these guys, these drivers in action, obviously the big names are always going to get remembered. You know, you know the benchmark drivers of each year are Fangio, Moss, Clark, Stewart, Lauda, Prost, Senna, Schumacher. You know, they come to they come to mind very easily. Um, but then there are a lot of good drivers who were, you know, almost as good as some of these guys at various points during their careers and see if it really had to work hard for his you know his his statistics very much like Rodriguez actually it's, although they've got different backgrounds I see them in a similar a similar way really in that their records do not do them justice um, I think Pedro was probably a little bit better I, I think that when he was killed he was up there and we said in the in the Rodriguez mm-hmm. podcast I think he was after Jochen was killed and into 71, I think Pedro was as good as anyone except Jackie Stewart. I think he'd have been up there with, you know, Jackie X you know, as, as the kind of the next in line. I think Sifford was just behind that. But I think it would have been interesting to see how his career would have gone in the year or two afterwards. Because I get the impression that Sifford was a better driver when he wasn't in a direct competition with Rodriguez. Now, you might say that's a, a mental weakness that maybe had a mental block with him. Um, but the, the fact is that that mental block was no longer there by the end of 71. So, yeah, he probably doesn't get the credit he deserves other than with sort of aficionados of the time. Um, but certainly you speak to the other drivers. Yeah, I spoke to Brian Redman, Jackie Oliver, Tony Southgate, Southgate, the designer of the BRMs. 
yeah, they all they all rated him. They said he was very, very good. He wasn't a technical driver. He wasn't a great development driver, the same as Rodriguez. And this is where they're lacking that little bit to Stuart. You know, Stuart's the guy, yeah, he was ahead of his time really. He was the guy that sat in the you know, the debrief we call it now, making sure he had a gear fourth gear long enough to get to the line at Mons without changing gear. That kind of attention to detail is why the greats are the greats. But you know, in terms of their driving ability, yeah, Sifford and Rodriguez I don't think were were too far behind. Clearly, he was a, an incredible talent and did very well in privateer machinery. But why don't you think he managed to get to a big team in Formula One? Well, I think it was partly loyalty to Rob Walker. Um, and he was also courted by Ferrari. I think Ferrari were getting a bit fed up with... I think they must have noticed um, you know, his sports car drives. Because remember in those days, sports car driving, sports car championship was big stuff. Uh, I'm not saying that it isn't now, but you know it was closer to being on a par with F1 in those days. And in some at some circuits, the sports cars were quicker than F1 cars as well. So if you were a top sports car driver, you know you were going to get people's interest. And for 1970, Ferrari were were courting Siffert, and Porsche were so determined to keep hold of him that they paid for a factory marked drive. Can you imagine that now? <laughs> a sports car team paying an F1 team to make sure that driver doesn't fall into the hands of somebody else. Um, just Social incredible. media. So that put, <laughs> Social yeah, media would yeah, have a meltdown. So, <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. That would be, yeah, they would, would, it would do, wouldn't it? So, yeah, so he was very sad to, to leave Rob Walker. And I, uh, but Rob, um, from the accounts I've read, was very supportive of that mood, move. You know, he saw Siffert as a, you know, he needed, he knew he needed to go on and take a big opportunity when it came along. Um, obviously, the Porsche sports car gig was very important to, um, you know, to, to well, to Porsche and Siffert, and then for them to pay for him to have a works March drive for 1970, that was kind of, in theory, a big break. As it happened, of course, the March 701 was not fabulous, and he didn't score a point all year, so he'd have been better off with a Rob Walker car, probably. Um, and the sports car season was difficult because, obviously, he came up against this Rodriguez factor at, uh, with the golf team. Um I think things were looking better for 71. I think you would say when he joins BRM, that, that's a big team. So Tony Southgate's resurrected them the previous, not just Tony, but yeah, he was the designer. There are other people there as well, but the team had turned itself around from its dark days in the second half of the 60s. It's starting the year with a young, good designer and two top top drivers, you know, Sifford and Roger gets together. And I think that was... Yeah, that was kind of that should have been the start of a new chapter in his life, um, but unfortunately, it was a yeah, it was a very short one. And obviously, he was incredibly talented in sports cars, but his Le Mans record perhaps isn't perhaps what you'd expect. He had a couple of class wins, but didn't actually win the race outright. Yeah, I did a um, another one of my lists. It just sounds like I write lists all the time. <laughs> um, I, I, it was a few years ago now. Um, I did a list of the, of the greatest sports car drivers never to win Le Mans, and he was on it. Um, he wasn't as uh, maybe quite as high because some of those people on the list, I think, have just been incredibly unlucky. Whereas Siffert did, he did contribute to his own demise in 1970, a race of high attrition. I think there were seven classified runners at the end of it. Uh, it was a appallingly wet race uh, at times. And the car that qualified, I think, 14th, I spoke to Richard Atwood, who won the race, and he said, there's no way we should have won that race. We were in the lead by half distance. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, and Siffert and Redmond were actually in the lead, and Siffert missed a gear change, going past the pits, going through traffic, blew the engine to pieces. One of the problems with the Narman 7 is that, the, you know, <laughs> if it, it was very easy to over-rev and buzz the engine on downshifts and gear changes, and he did, and, he, and that was probably his best chance to win it overall, and that, so that was his own fault. 69, I think they would have been quids in. They made the right choice probably to pick the 908 with the... Uh, rather than the 917, which was very difficult then. And I think a Siffert-Redmond combo would have been very good in a 908 and 69, but they had new streamlined bodywork and that overheated the rear end. And then 71, they were never... Well, they were in it to start with. They had a few problems, but to be honest, the car that should have won in 1971 was the Rodriguez-Jackie Oliver car because that was the sister car, which just had the legs on uh, on the Siffert car all, all day, really. So... Yeah, he didn't. He doesn't have that Le Mans win, but he can't have been that hard on equipment if he's got wins at the Targa Florio, Nurburgring, thousand kilometres. It's quite a difficult one to to work out exactly how hard he was, um, and perhaps Wires' view is the best way of summing up. Which was, you know, he 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 drove it hard, but the car should be able to take it. 
And that's, of course, the attitude a modern team has now. You should be able to drive a sports car flat out for 24 hours and it should it should stand it. Um, uh, I think probably in those days, you, the most successful drivers, uh, yeah, the difference with Rodriguez, if you like, was a little bit more of an understanding or, or perhaps um, a more of a willingness to accept that the car wouldn't take a thrashing for 24 hours. Um, but yeah, 14 World Sports Car Championship victories. You know, he's still up there in quite high up on the list of, of sports car winners. So couldn't have been that much of a car breaker. And obviously, tragically, we, Joe was killed at Brands Hatch. Um, the funeral was quite an extravagant affair, which I guess shows just how well thought of he was. I think 50,000 people turned up. Yeah, well, he, was a, he was a national hero. He was the first Swiss driver to win a World Championship Grand Prix. Um, you know, he was... Uh, quite a successful, you know, business, business person as well. You know, he put a lot, he was a bit of a, a dealer, wheeler dealer, if you like, to to make things happen. He was well known in the locality. Um, you know, a, a hero. Uh, I still find it remarkable that a country with no motor racing is able to produce you know him and Clayback. It's only so close together, but um, yeah. Uh, and part of the cavalcade was a nine one seven. Now I, I fancy a bit of that. That sounds very cool to me. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, it must have been quite a quite a sort of. Uh, epic sight I suppose um, but yes in Switzerland he'd have been yeah he'd have been uh, you know a big, a big hero really I think just to mark 40 years since his passing the A1 GP team Switzerland even had a message to uh, to Joe on their car um, if I'm right ah really awesome that's good yeah, so, yeah. well I wanted to it would have, it would be good to get Sebastian Buemi's view uh, to see whether I, I just don't I per, don't know Boemi personally, so I don't know if he's uh, how how much of an aficionado he is of motorsport history. I know if we spoke to Sebastian Vettel about uh, <laughs> German drives of the past, he'd be all over it with the stats and stuff. But uh, I don't know what Boemi's interest or knowledge is. But um, yeah, I mean he's a, a big yeah. There aren't many uh, top yeah. If you were doing a list of um, top motorsport dri- you know top drivers from Switzerland, it wouldn't be a yeah it wouldn't be a long list for understandable reasons. Um, and Sif, you know, Sif, Joseph, it would definitely be in there. Um, actually, I've just thought of one other hard charging thing. I've got, I've got to mention because I found footage of it. So number eleven on the top ten oh. <laughs> was uh, nineteen sixty-eight Nurburgring thousand kilometers. Uh, the reason it's not on the list is because ultimately he was sharing a Porsche nine hundred eight with Vic Elford, and I mean, there was no one was going to beat those two, providing the nine hundred eight held together. So. Um, even though they started, they started twenty seventh. So they started twenty seventh partly because of car problems and partly because they were dropped into other people's Porsches during the course of practice. But there's footage of the start. Now, I'd read accounts of it, but there's nothing quite like seeing it. So if you can, if you can dig it out, so why? There's it's a Le Mans style start. So and it's with there. It's an enormous field. So it's bigger than Le Mans. You know what Nurburgring's like? They throw everything at it, um, and it had a whole range of. You know, proper kit and some less proper kit. So there were a good <laughs> 60, 70 odd cars. And there's a, there's a shot of the shot of all the cars lined up in the Mon style where they have to run across the road in the car and go. And he's third by the first corner from 27th. He just gets in the car and he just passes everyone. <laughs> there are all these cars pulling out in, you know, and he's just got, taken the wide line and just driven flat chat past everyone. So he's made his life an awful lot easier. Uh, straight from the start so I thought it was probably a bit much to include something on the basis of a start um, in which running to the car was as important as driving it um, but um, it's quite spectacular for you to see this white flash going past everything I guess just to sort of wrap up obviously this is 50 years since his passing how how can you sum up Joseph in a few words just to say like why he should be remembered well, I think from a personal point of view, you should be remembered just how hard he worked to get to motorsport in the first place. You know, he wasn't a privileged background, but also just, you know, one of the, one of the great drivers of his era. Um, and I think it's it's important for uh, and, and interesting. You know, it's important for people to remember the past and all sort for all sorts of reasons. But it's also interesting. You know, I I, I read quite a lot about. Sifford and Rodriguez when I was growing up because my dad left a load of old old sports around, so I didn't just read about the current stuff. I read backwards as well. And uh, and you just come across interesting stories, and I had I found a lot of the, the putting the top ten together really interesting, um, fascinating stories, insights into human endeavour really, um, and hopefully other people find that interesting too. So yeah, and Sifford was yeah hard charger, yeah great character. Uh, the relationship we had with Rob Walker I think was special, and um, yeah just another talent that was lost to motorsport too soon and deserves to be remembered. 
Awesome. Thanks, Well, Thanks, Kevin, for your time today on the podcast. That was an excellent recap of the life of Joseph. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.